want to uh, let you know about that thing that happened this week. <laughs> Went in and signed papers on Thursday. Pretty awesome. Uh, you know, the one thing that, that makes all of your nerves kind of tingle is when you're signing for a $1.2 million purchase, right? <laughs> and I got to tell you, man, my, my, the pen hovered over the paper a little bit before it went down on the paper. And, and I, honestly, I was thinking as I was holding the pen there, <clears throat> can we do this? Can we really do this? And, and two thoughts came quickly to mind. Number one, God is faithful. And God has always been faithful to us. He's always provided for us. He's always filled in the blanks. When I often say that, you know, the, the history of LifePoint is the history of God filling in blanks because um, there's been so many times throughout the, over these last several years, and especially in the early years, but, but also in, in the intervening years uh, of God providing things. We didn't know where, where they were going to come from. Um, and uh, how it was going to be done, and yet God came through, and, and God has been so faithful to us. And then, so that was my first thought. The second thought was, will LifePoint be faithful? And and then I thought, yeah, they will be, because you have been. You have been. And so the pen went down in the paper, and I signed in all the appropriate places, and so now we're in. And uh, so be faithful, be faithful. If you uh, have not, uh, if you've heard the the two-word phrase, vision next, and you don't know what that means, go to mylpclacy.com and click on vision next, and you'll find out everything you want to know and more about vision next, how to pledge, how to be a part of that. Um, I want to let you know what's happening now. Well, let me start with this, this thing I'm holding in my hand. Last week, South Sound Community Church had their final service in the building. It was a bittersweet moment. Uh, for them, they are worshiping this morning at a new location uh, over off of College Street um, in the Woodlands. But they've been a, a, a faithful church. In fact, uh, Bill and Greg went, Bill and Deb and Greg and Fran went last Sunday and represented us at South Sound during their final service. And during that service, um, they handed off the baton and on one side of this baton, it says South Sound Church and their logo. The other side, it says Life Point Church and our logo. And in between, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And that goes on in the next verse and says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy is set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. South Sound Church is a great church. They've had a great history, a great legacy, and uh, my prayer for them is that God gives them a future. Um, right now, it's it's not clear to them whether they have a future, but uh, their pastor, Steve Carpenter, was a great pastor. They're Interim pastor Ron Kearns is just a, a wonderful, godly man, and uh, it's just been a pleasure uh, knowing them and having and, and being a part of this transition. So, what happens tomorrow is, uh, according to John Davis, who's sitting over there, who's our project manager, um, we start poking around 
and uh, some windows come off, some walls come off. We start looking in the deep, dark nooks and crannies to see what we're up against. And uh, we're gonna. There's a lot of stuff that's going to happen over this coming summer, over these months, and there are going to be a lot of ways for you to participate. If you have construction skills, uh, right now is when we need to know that. And if you have a background in that, because you can be used. And so if you would just mark your connection card or come and see. Would you wave your hand, John, so people know who you are? John is our project manager. And uh, he would love to uh, to meet you. Yeah, yeah. Um, doing a great job. Phenomenal job. So, um, But we would love to know that right now because there are some things that we... Uh, want to do that uh, are going to require some of those skills right off the bat. But uh, anyway, there you go. If you want to see this baton, I'll have it, and uh, it's pretty cool. We'll put that in a prominent place eventually. I want to just uh, make one more comment in that vein, and that is that um, many of us are going to be on vacation this summer, going to be in and out, and uh, what often happens in giving in churches in the summer is the what's referred to notoriously as the summer slump. And I want to just encourage us, especially right now at this moment, uh, to be faithful in our giving and uh, would encourage you to consider setting up recurring giving. You can go to mylpclacy.com and do that uh, under giving, and you can set up recurring payments, set it and forget it, and know that uh, that's all happening on schedule. We would appreciate that so much. Well, we're in Romans uh, this morning, again. We'll be until Jesus comes, I think. (laughs) If he comes between now and January. Amen, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Uh, I will tell you that Romans is humbling me. Um, I'm, I'm learning so much in Romans. You've had this experience, I know, but um, you, you come to a passage that you think, well, it's familiar. And all of a sudden you see something that you've never, ever seen before. And it just happens over and over again in God's Word because it's living and it's active. And it speaks to us right where we are when it needs to speak to us. I want to encourage you to, to open your Bible this morning, whether it's a print Bible or electronic. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 this morning. It's a short passage, but a packed passage. Let's stand and read it together. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, in the first six chapters here, of, or six verses rather, of chapter 7, uh, Paul is giving us 
a second answer to the question, shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And in a sense, it's a third answer, because in chapter 6, he had asked the question, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? In uh, the latter part of chapter 6, he asks the question, shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? We saw that last week that that word under means to be subordinate to, to be uh, under the authority of. And Paul says, shall we, can, shall we sin because we are not under the authority of law, but now under the authority of grace, the leadership of grace? Or put another way, does the gospel leave you free to live in any way you choose? And, and Paul is uh, nothing if not thorough <laughs> in answering this question because he's coming at it from a variety of angles and helping us to understand the fullness of what it means to be under grace rather than under law. In the previous section, his answer was, you're going to have to serve somebody. You can either be a slave to the law or a slave to God. You can either be a slave to the devil or a slave to the Lord. You're going to have to serve somebody. Real freedom comes unexpectedly, ironically, paradoxically, when we are living as bond servants, servants by choice and for life of Jesus. In this section, Paul's answer to the question, shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace, is again, no, thank Thank God for consistency, right? He says, no. But this time he presents that you can either be married to the law or married to Christ. There's only one thing you can't be, and that is unmarried, he says. He's not talking here about marital status. He's not talking about women who take holy vows and enter a convent. Paul wants us to think about the power of the law to hold us captive, and the power of Christ to set us free, to live lives that are new in every way. And the first thing he wants us to understand in verse 1 is this, that the authority of law is limited to one's lifetime. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. That word translated binding points to an absolute authority. The absolute authority of the law over those who are subject to the law. The imperial nature, if if you will. The absolute authority of law. But this authority, Paul says, and he asserts it very clearly, and this statement covers over this passage. It summarizes it. This authority is limited to our lifetime. The one thing that invalidates the authority of the law is death. He states it in the form of a legal axiom. Everybody observes it. It's universally accepted. It's universally recognized. It's unchallengeable. And death changes not only the obligations of the deceased. They're obviously canceled. But also the obligations of any survivors who may have been under legal contract with the deceased. It all goes away. Maybe a 
death tax, depending on who's in, in power, right? And he says, look, here's, here's a way of understanding this. Here's one example, marriage. And I want to say right up front that Paul is not developing a theology of marriage and divorce here. This passage informs the New Testament teaching on marriage and divorce, but it's not the final answer. You have to look elsewhere for a full treatment on that. But he says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Why didn't he talk about the wife dying and the husband? I don't know. I don't know. This is just the example he chose. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. The law of marriage binds her. The death of her husband frees her. It would be the same going the other way. And and her release is complete. The verb that's translated released here is katergeo. It, it, it can mean to annul, it can mean to destroy, to abolish. And the apostles saying, I think, that the woman's legal status as a wife has been abolished, completely done away with. And she is no longer a wife from a legal perspective. He's not talking about emotions here. He's talking about the law. She is no longer a wife from a legal perspective perspective. She is free to remarry if she chooses to do so. So a marriage that's entered into subsequent to her husband's death is morally legitimate because death terminated the previous marriage. And these references to death and freedom from law and remarriage already are hinting at the application that Paul is going to drive at very quickly. Now, This may seem strange to say, and you may say, well, why are you even raising this? But it's important to note here that Paul is not teaching allegorically. Um, Allegory, as a literary form, is like a, a long metaphor. It's a story or a poem that's used to, to draw an extended comparison between two different things. In an allegory, characters and events symbolize particular ideas or concepts in in real life, or even sometimes people in real life. And and an allegory is just laden with symbolism. When you were a child, you may have read or had read to you Aesop's fables, for example, with uh, allegorical tales like the tortoise and the hare or the fox and the grapes, the ant and the grasshopper. And later you may have read Pilgrim's Progress, which is probably the most famous allegory of all time, or Watership Down, or The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or Animal Farm. All of those are allegorical in nature. And the reason it's important to make the point that Paul wasn't attempting allegory is twofold. One is that Paul's been criticized by those who insist that this is precisely what he is doing, because by allegorical standards, one would have to call it a weak attempt on Paul's part. Things just don't connect the way an allegory should, which is a good indication that he's not teaching allegorically. But a second, more important reason is that to impose the requirements of allegory in Paul's teaching here 
results in some rather far-fetched conclusions, and we'll come to that in a moment. But it's clearly not what Paul is doing. He's simply providing a down-home domestic illustration that everyone can understand. But even at that, we also need to observe that Paul's illustration does not provide a perfect parallel. Because in the case of the, the illustration, the husband dies and the wife is free. But Paul is saying that we died. We died to the law. Not the law. The law didn't die. We died to the law. But even though it's not a perfect parallel, it accomplishes its purpose. So you just hang in there with it and don't get all Twitter-pated over it. He, he, he turns in verse 4 from domestic law to the law of God, which also claims authority over us while we live. And Paul implies for the sake of his analogy, not his allegory, his analogy, that we were previously married to the law and we were therefore under its authority. But in the same way that death terminates a marriage contract and permits remarriage, our death to the law freed us to belong to Christ, to belong to another. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. And we've seen this before, but here it is again. How how did we die to the law. What's he saying? He says in the beginning of verse 4, we also have died through the body of Christ. He said it previously in Romans 6, 3 and 4, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we die. Symbolized by baptism, we died. When when we've seen this, and I'll just do what I did before so you remember that we're, we're united with Christ by faith. That's what Paul says. He says it over and over again in his letters in various ways. When we put our faith in Christ, we are united with Christ in such a way that his death for us became our death. We died with him. His burial became our burial. We were buried with him. His resurrection became our resurrection. We were raised with him to newness of life. In the middle of verse 4, he answers another question. Why did we die to the law? Why did we die to the law? And the answer is we died, he says, so that we may belong to Christ. You also have died to the law so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. You're free now. You're free from your previous marriage, as it were, to the law. You died. And now you're free to belong to Christ. And in the latter part of verse 4, he answers another question. To what end did we die to the law? For what purpose? For what outcome? And the answer is that we died so that we may bear fruit for God. You also have died to the law in order that we may bear fruit for God. And I said just a moment ago that demanding that Paul is teaching allegorically 
leads to some far-fetched conclusions. And here's one of them, because there are those who insist on the phrase that we may bear fruit for God, symbolizing the children that are born to the marriage between us and Christ. But the word fruit is never used in the New Testament to refer to the birth of children. In the previous chapter here in Romans, fruit is used simply to to represent outcomes, and that's what Paul is saying here. And the outcomes have to do with our character and our conduct, and again, we'll talk about that in a moment. And secondly, to interpret fruit-bearing as child-bearing requires that we see the individual Christian as married to Christ, and that's not what Paul is driving at ever. He's using this as an illustration. The New Testament never says that we are individually brides of Christ, there aren't a whole bunch of you know thousands, millions of brides of Christ. There's one bride of Christ, and it's the church. We corporately are the bride of Christ. In the Old Testament, Israel was depicted as God's bride. In the New Testament, it's the church. And so Paul in Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. In the New Testament, fruit-bearing refers to the transformation of character that results from the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives. When when you trusted in Christ, the Holy Spirit came and took up residence in your life, set up housekeeping in your life. Uh, We often use the expression when we're talking to children and others that, that when you pray to receive Christ as your Savior, you're asking Him to come into your heart. The Bible never really uses that particular imagery, but it does say that he comes and he takes up residence, and he changes us from the inside out. So in the New Testament, fruit-bearing refers to the transformation of character. Galatians 5, 22 to 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So there's, there's a change of character that results and that's referred to as fruit. And there's, there's also this transformation of our conduct as our character changes, our, our conduct changes, our conversation changes. We, we live differently. We serve God differently. And then Paul goes on in verses 5 and 6, five and, six and says, We were in the flesh, but we are now in the Spirit. And Paul has only begun to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in Romans. It's starting, the, the topic of the Spirit is starting to move into the conversation here in Romans. But verses 5 and 6, for while we were living in the flesh, remember the flesh is that, that self-control, that old nature, the person we were before Christ, the the sinful person in rebellion against God, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit. There it is again, to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And notice what he says there in the first part of In verse 5, he says, we were aroused by the law, but now we are released from it. It's an interesting expression. 
our sinful passions were aroused by the law. Which is another way of saying that, that our sinful, as the, as the law came in, we were provoked to rebellion. And Paul says uh, in a number of ways here in Romans, he's already said several things about the law, that the law came in to increase the transgression. That, that the law was never meant to save us, but to condemn us. The law, he says in another place, became our tutor to lead us to Christ, our schoolmaster. Because as we realize that we can't keep the law, and the law itself actually makes us sin more, we come to the place where we say, and we'll see this later here in chapter 7, where we say, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? from this body controlled by death. Praise be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we come to that place where we say, I can't keep the law. I need a Savior. <laughs> I'm toast if, if my performance is the thing that I have to rely on to get me into heaven or to be right with God. I'm toast. I need a Savior. I need somebody. I have a desperate need for someone to rescue me from my sin. We're aroused by the law. Evan showed me a picture between services of any, any of the rest of you been to Al, the Alamo? Anybody here been to the Alamo? It's like signs everywhere, right? Don't do this and don't do that. So it says, apparently it says, don't touch the walls. Is that what it said, Cindy? Don't touch the walls. And, and did and did you? Yes. And what did your daughter do? She licked the walls. Ah! See, and 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 see, your your husband totally convicted your whole family. So, so he says, it "said keep off the grass." And Kellen did that. Why? Because law provokes rebellion, doesn't it? I mean, you ever think about Adam and Eve in the garden? You know, and, and, or just Adam actually originally. And God says to Adam. You know, Adam, here you are in this amazing garden. Eat from all the trees. You have plenty to eat. You never be hungry again. Never be malnourished. You can eat all of this, but all about that one tree over there. Don't eat from that one. Because then when you do, you'll die. And what did they do? They ate it. His wife was deceived. Adam ate it with knowledge. He knew what he was doing. Law provokes rebellion. Tell you not to do something, and you watch. You'll do it. And you know, as parents, you know that that's true. Tell your kids not to do something, and next time you look, you'll, they'll be doing it. Or when you're not looking, they'll be doing it. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. We bore fruit for death, he says. But now we bear fruit for God. Now we, we serve him. The, the results of our lives, the results of our conduct, the results of our character, all bring honor and glory to God. That's what we're free to do. And what accounts for this release from the old life and our rebellion, our initiation into the new? That event of our having died with Christ and having been released with him to newness, or being raised with him to, to newness of life. But now we are released from the law, verse 6, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve. See that? We were held captive, serving the law, 
But now we serve. Got to serve somebody. We serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So we return to the question whether the law is still binding on us as Christians and whether we're still expected to obey it. And if, if you're a thinking Christian, if you're a thinking Christ follower, this question has occurred to you at least, at least once, probably very frequently in your life. Is, what's this about? Is the law binding on me as a Christ follower? Am I still expected to obey it? And the answer is yes and no. And you say, well, that's real helpful, Pastor. Thank you very much. The answer is yes in the sense that Christian freedom is freedom to serve. It's not freedom to sin. We are still slaves. That old prophet Bob Dylan said, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. You're going to have to serve somebody, but we're no longer slaves to sin and the law. Now we are slaves of God and of righteousness, Paul says. And in there, in, the, in that place, we find freedom. Why? Because that was what we were made for in the, originally. We find our real purpose in life. We're free. So yes and no, no, because m- the motives of our service and the means of our service have entirely changed. Why do we serve? Not because... The law is our master, and we must, but because Christ is our master, and we want to. I heard a woman say one time, well, if it's all by grace, and and there's nothing I can do to earn my salvation, then all of my motivation for being good is gone. (laughs) She missed the point, didn't she? It's not because we must, but because we want to. We're now bound with cords of love and not of fear. And so we we serve God out of love, we serve God out of gratitude, and we serve God in joy because in that place we find freedom and in freedom we find joy. And in that place we have hope, which we didn't have before. And, And hope... Joy without hope is not joy. Joy is rooted in hope because we know that we have a future. And it's a a future that involves life, not death. It involves being in the presence of God, not being separated from Him. Our, Our motivation for service is not fear of punishment that comes from our failure to keep the law. In the first service, I... We talked about the Pharisees, and, and if you've been here a few years, you, you may have heard me say this at one time or another, but the, the whole motivation of the Pharisees was they, they were afraid of God. They lived in, in terror of God. Any of you been to the Grand Canyon? Some of you. Not as many as in the first service. Some of you need to take a vacation. But if you've been to the Grand Canyon, you encounter what's right here when you're peering over. There's a fence, right? Sometimes. And they put fences where places like Casey want to go, when people like Casey want to go get too close. You're afraid. 
So here's what the Pharisees did. They, they would see the edge. They'd see the law. And they say, if I do that thing, I'm going to offend God and I'm going to be punished. And so they would drop back 10 yards and build a fence. And that would calcify, that fence would calcify into law. Why? Because, well, we don't want to offend God, so let's back up and, and create a law. And that, that fence calcifies into law, and now we think that's the law. It wasn't. It was just a fence you built to keep you from violating the law. But now that fence becomes a law to itself. It calcifies over time into law. And so then what they do? They'd, they'd back up another 10 yards and build another fence, and over time that would calcify into law. That's why Jesus said of the Pharisees, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And that's why Jesus came into so much conflict with the Pharisees, because their laws had nothing to do with the reality. They lived in fear of God. And that's why people who live in fear of God are stuck in rules all the time. We no longer live in fear of God. We, we live in the love of God. We live in the grace of God. We live in the freedom of God. That's why you hear people use the expression that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It is a religion, but the reality is the essence of, the, of Christianity is relationship with God. A relationship that's no longer based in fear, but in love because of his grace toward us. Because of the cross. And the master we now serve is Christ and not the law. And, and Paul would add that the power by which we serve is the spirit and not the letter. The master we now serve is Christ, not the law. The power by which we serve is the spirit and not the letter. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And I think what Paul is providing us here, in one way of looking at it, is, is the definition of the Christian life. But what is the Christian life? What is the essence of it? And, and I think he would say to us that the Christian life is serving the risen Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Our motivation is love. Our action is service. Our power for doing that is, is the Holy Spirit who comes and lives in us and, and, and enables us to live the life that he's called us to live. And my prayer for us as a church is that we would never become a church that's just steeped in religion, that, that serves according to rules, but that we would serve in joy and in freedom in the love of God, with love for him. There are going to be a lot of opportunities, by the way, to serve this summer. And we're going to be letting you know what those are. But uh, as I said, the walls are going to start coming off tomorrow morning. And uh, over the summer, we're going to do a lot of renovation on the property over there. And uh, 
move in sometime in in the fall, late September, early October. Very excited. What a privilege it is to serve a God who loves us, who solved the problem of our separation from him through the cross. So that we now are free. Free to serve and uh, to do that out of love and gratitude. I want you to know that I love you. Uh, I love our church. I love what God is doing here. And uh, let's keep running the race together, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for, uh, for your grace toward us in Christ. Thank you that uh, we're united with him by faith, that his death is ours, his burial is ours, his resurrection is ours, and so we are free to live in a, in a new way, with new freedom, with new joy, with new hope, with new love. And Lord, enable us to be those who express your love to those around us to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to those who don't yet know the Lord Jesus. Lord, as we enter into a new chapter of our history as a church, our heart and our desire is to walk in step with your Spirit. Not to get out in front of him and not to lag behind him to walk in step and in, in responsiveness to the promptings of your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, would you guide us to that end individually? Would you empower us corporately to live that life? That we would be a church that you would choose to bless. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.